all the way through chapter 64. Uh, the prayer break, breaks down into about three different parts, and the first verses that you have before you, it's Isaiah remembering the grace of God shown to them, his steadfast love. Um, it's a good way to start any prayer. Um, it's based in thankfulness for what God has done for us as his people, sparing us his wrath by pouring it out on Messiah on our behalf. And so these opening verses that we study today, that we look at today, um, begin a prayer, a beautiful prayer, one of the most magnificent prayers in the Old Testament, prayed by Isaiah on behalf of the people. So please hear as I read this opening portion of the prayer, verse 7 down to verse 14 of chapter 63. This is God's inspired and inerrant word. So therefore, it is authoritative for our life, and it has all we need for life and godliness. Verse 7. I will recount the steadfast love of the Lord, the praises of the Lord, according to all that the Lord has granted us, and the great goodness to the house of Israel, that he has granted them according to his compassion, according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he said, surely they are my people, children who will not deal falsely. And he became their savior. In all their affliction he was afflicted, and the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his pity he redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. But they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. Therefore he turned to be their enemy and himself fought against them. Then he remembered the days of old, of Moses and his people. Where is he who brought them up out of the sea with the shepherds of his flock? Where is he who put in the midst of them his Holy Spirit, who caused his glorious arm to go at the right hand of Moses, who divided the waters before them to make for himself an everlasting name, who led them through the depths, Like a horse in the desert, they did not stumble. Like livestock that go down into the valley, the Spirit of the Lord gave them rest. So you led your people to make for yourself a glorious name. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Heavenly Father, we rejoice in your steadfast love toward us, your people. We are overwhelmed with gratitude when we contemplate the great salvation that you have given us through Christ. The wrath that we deserve is poured upon him. We are strengthened when we remember your mighty deeds towards our spiritual forefathers that we read of here. And even further edified when we recount the manifold ways that you have blessed each of us at this present time. As we approach a national time of thanksgiving, please cause us to be a thankful people before we are in asking people. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the many psalms from the Davidic era credited to Asaph, which could be a group of people or it could just be one individual, it could be even capturing one of David's psalms, is Psalm 50. And in Psalm 50, um, there are words that make you wonder if Isaiah had this in mind as he began his prayer. In Psalm 50, verse 23, the psalmist says, The one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. To one who orders his ways rightly, I will show the salvation of God. One who begins with thankfulness brings glory to God. And when we have that order right, God brings us his deliverance. When we are thankful for what he has provided. And one of the key 
features of thankfulness is remembrance. Remembering goes together with thankfulness when it comes to God. When you remember what God has done, redemptively in the record of Scripture, and then even personally or corporately as a church, when you remember what God has done, then you become more thankful. And it's from that posture that you bring your petitions or the things we ask from God, starting with thankfulness. This is more or less what Paul was saying in Philippians 4. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Thankfulness or thanksgiving is really a demeanor of the heart more than just about words. You could just say thank you, could say thank you and not really be thankful. Thanksgiving is a sense of appreciation for what has been done on our behalf. And recounting the good things that have been done, that's an act of thanksgiving, especially when we're talking about God. And that's what Isaiah does here. Remembering. It's an important part of our spiritual lives. Remembering the goodness of God spurs thankfulness. Remembering and thankfulness, they go hand in hand. This is why Derek Kidner, a great Old Testament scholar, said, Here the prophet is stirred to one of the most eloquent intercessions of the Bible as he surveys the past goodness of God and the present straits of the people. The people were in straits. They're in difficulty. They're about to go into captivity or exile with Bab- in Babylon. So he prays, not immediately asking them for deliverance. He prays immediately recounting the goodness of God to his people. Yes, they're in straits. Yes, they're in trials. Yes, there will be a challenge. But he recounts the goodness of God. And in particular, something I want you to see in verse 7. This sets up the whole prayer. He remembers the steadfast love of God towards his people. Verse 7. I will recount the steadfast love of the Lord. A very important phrase here. Steadfast love. In the Hebrew language, there's not, there's not a way in the English language to translate what the Hebrew language says here. And so the translators do their best with steadfast love. Some of your translations will say loving kindness. Some will say mercy. The word is more than just human love. Human love is, is fickle. It changes. It's, it's based on emotions or it's at least affected by emotions often. That's not true of God's love, and so it's steadfast love. The word is hesed, which is an important word for God's love, and the kind of love God's people can start to have for each other as a result of God's hesed toward us. All of this is based in remembering how God has manifested this steadfast love, especially in difficult times. Johnson Oatman is a hymn writer that we probably aren't that familiar with here. You may have been, in, a, in, in your past, familiar with hymns that he has written. Um, he wrote a lot of revival hymns at the turn uh, in, from the 1800s into the 1900s. They're not typically sung much in Presbyterian churches. They tend to be uh, generally a less congregational quality. They're really individual songs, uh, a person expressing their walk with God. Nothing wrong with those expressions, but they're not devised primarily for congregations to sing uh, as a whole. And one such hymn is Count Your Many Blessings. You probably have heard this before. And though it's not easily sung or even well sung oftentimes in congregational singing, the words themselves are very important and they teach something um, that helps us here. One of the lines is, when upon life's billows you are tempest-tossed, when you're in straits, 
when you are discouraged, thinking all is lost, count your many blessings, name them one by one, and it will surprise you what the Lord has done. What Oatman captures is when we are low, when we are in difficulty, it's easy to forget the blessings of God. If you commit to recounting the steadfast love of God at the start, that helps you recount the particular ways in which God has been faithful or he has blessed us or shown us his steadfast love. Uh, You have to count them. You have to be intentional about it. And when you start doing it, you'll start to realize even though you are in difficult straits, for whatever reason, God has been manifestly gracious to us, and that will remind us, it may even surprise you what the Lord has done. And it is surprising that Isaiah, at this juncture in Judah's life, would start this prayer with verse 7. I will recount the steadfast love of the Lord. Now I want you to look at verse 7 as a whole. It sets up the whole prayer. I will recount the steadfast love of the Lord. It begins with this statement. The praises of the Lord, according to all that the Lord has granted us, and the great goodness to the house of Israel, that he has granted them according to his compassion. Now like another bookend, according to the abundance of his steadfast love, hesed. This word can be translated many ways as I have mentioned. It is a commitment. It is deeper than a feeling. It's a covenantal commitment to be exact when talking about Yahweh or God or Jehovah. It's his contractual commitment that he made first with Abraham, then he confirms through Moses, and now he's bringing up again, even in a difficult time, it's the steadfast love of God. It doesn't change based on what we do or on how one feels. Faithful love in action, one commentator said. Another said, God's hesed denotes persistent and unconditional tenderness, kindness, and mercy, a relationship in which he seeks after man with love and mercy. And we know through the whole of Isaiah that he does so through his faithful servant in our place. Um, It's because of Christ, the Messiah, he has this never stopping, this unfailing love and commitment towards us, his people. And so it doesn't matter how you feel about that at a given moment or how you feel about God's love towards you. God's love is steadfast. It's never failing because it is rooted in the finished work of the Messiah. That's the big picture we get from studying Isaiah and, of course, the Scripture as a whole. And so this should be the starting point for our prayer. When we recount the blessings of God, we start with his commitment to make us his people, Um, his steadfast love that does not change no matter how we feel. The basis for our prayers, then, is the mind of God regarding us, his people. So that's how we start. We know what God thinks of us. This is why the Lord's Prayer starts, our Father. It's a statement about who we are to God. But you've just sinned, our Father, because of what he has done through Messiah. This is the beginning stage, and Isaiah demonstrates it very clearly, the basis for our prayers. Making the beginning of our prayers, remembering and recounting the steadfast love of God, will guide and direct the rest of what we pray. Now, it gets deeper than this, as you would imagine. Look at verse 8 and verse 9. As it, it, go, it plums the depth deeper of this steadfast love. It's an elective love. It's a saving love. It's, it's a love that causes him uh, to do something magnificent. He chooses us, not on the basis of what we do, but because of his good pleasure, because he is God, and he is, uh, he is able to extend grace to the worst of sinners and making it 
very obvious it couldn't be something we did to make ourselves attractive to. And so it comes in verse 8, for surely he said, for he said, surely they are my people, children who will not deal falsely, and he became their savior. Surely they are my people. Now we know that they deal falsely, that we deal falsely. That's been the picture of Israel. That's our own experience. But the verse is speaking in terms of what he will do. Surely they are my people, he elects. Children who will not deal falsely. Well, how can that be? He will become their savior. It's a picture of of their status before him and what he will ultimately accomplish. God did not just float an idea of salvation out there and then wait for people to come grab it. Nobody would grab it. Nobody would. In fact, it's kind of the, the picture that I, I often um, think of is when a cattleman is out feeding the cattle, they only need to drive into the pasture with their truck full of grain or corn or whatever they're feeding. And the cattle, who are normally pretty slow moving and just kind of walk around just doing their thing, they see that truck come in and they go to it. They go to it and they eat because they can but that's not a picture of, of God offering salvation, us coming. Nobody can come because we're dead in our trespasses and sins. It'd be more like um, a steer being super sick and then the cattleman feeding them by hand. They can't move. The only problem is we're dead. It's not, we're not just sick. And so this picture of election roots in remembering what God has done. He has shown steadfast love. He has made the statement based on nothing any person had done, you are my people. And I'm going to make you, or you're going to be true. You will not deal falsely. Well, how can that be? I will be your savior. He's capturing all of what Isaiah has been saying already in his prayer now with these words. God picked them. He picked them when they were sinful in order to make them sinless. To make them sinless, you would have to be their savior. God declared his intention to make them righteous. Now this is not the first time this kind of statement has been made. The intentions of God towards his people, starting in the Old Testament, extending to us now, um, were very clear. In Deuteronomy, listen to what was promised through Moses. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any of the other people on the earth, that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you're the fewest of all people. It's on the contrary that he picked you. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers, Abraham, that he's brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. When it comes to election, it's God's choice, not ours. He does this, and this manifests what is at the heart of steadfast love. You know, there's so many passages that one could quote. And oftentimes people will use passages and they'll say, look, this says the opposite. This says that man chooses God and God offers it and he just waits for people to choose. But usually if you read either the next verse or the next two verses or the five before it, it says something entirely different. In fact, John 1 is a classic one I'll hear people quote. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. It's kind of put out like, there he is, now you have to go receive him. But if you read verse 13, in total now, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God, comma, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, 
but of God. Were born. They were born prior to the reception. They were reborn prior to the reception. In fact, almost every time you read a verse that at surface level will tell you something about your choosing and not God choosing, you only have to read the context to realize it's saying the opposite. That's steadfast love. It's God's love, not based on what we do. It's what he has done. And we start by recounting this as we go to him. And if you don't recount it literally like out loud, just knowing you remember what God has done, which makes you thankful, and you come with thankfulness to God with anything you're asking for. In Ephesians 1, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. In love, that's his steadfast love. In fact, the way the, uh, the Greek translates hesed is often grace, the New Testament concept of grace. It's the same concept of grace in the whole Bible, actually. And hesed and grace, very similar. It's the unmerited favor of God shown to those who really deserve wrath because of Christ. Because of what Christ has done, God gives this favor. That's the steadfast love of God. We see the basis of God's election in verse 9. In all their affliction he was afflicted, and the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his pity he redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. What a beautiful picture based on God's mercy and pity. He redeems his people. And notice what it says in verse 9. There is a bit of a challenge to translate verse 9. But I think this is done well. In all their affliction, he was afflicted. There's a sense of identifying with our affliction. And the angel of his presence saved them. That's a reference back to the Exodus when God sent the angel of his presence. Now, the angel of his presence, if you look at verse 9, this is one of those neat kind of riddles at first. Or go back to verse 8. It says, Surely they are my people, children who will not deal falsely, and he, who's he? God. And he became their savior. That's verse 8. God became their savior. Verse 9. In all their affliction he was afflicted, and the angel of his presence saved them. It just said God saved them. It says the angel of his presence saved them. What could that mean? It most likely means it's the same person. There are things called Christophanies in the Old Testament where the pre-incarnate second person of the Trinity, Christ, appears. The angel of the Lord's army, or the captain of the Lord's army, the angel of the Lord. Not often, but this is something more than just a regular messenger or a regular angelic being. And I believe we have that here. The point, God's election is very personal. He personally chose his people before the foundation of the world. And he personally upholds them, he personally redeems them, and he will personally come again for them. God's salvation is initiated by him and completed by him. And this is the beginning, the rooting of the prayer that Isaiah offers on behalf of the people. And look at verse 10, it deals with the very difficult reality of how we respond. I mean, if there's any hope for us to get credit for an aspect of our salvation, it's washed away here in verse 10. What's the response to the steadfast love? But they rebelled. And grieved his Holy Spirit. Therefore he turned to be their enemy and himself fought against them. Please note the reference to the Holy Spirit here and again in a bit. God's Holy Spirit. Just a moment ago, God's second, the second person of the Godhead, Jesus, the angel of his presence, and God himself being prayed to. It's not that the Trinity is not clear in the Old Testament. You just have to be careful to see where it is on display. And I think we have it here. 
but they rebelled and grieved the whole, his, his Holy Spirit. Therefore, he turned to be their enemy and himself fought against them. We have already seen throughout this book that God declares himself um, to be their discipliner, and he uses Assyria, he uses Babylon, he uses whatever means to bring discipline to his people so that they come back to him, so that they have devotion again for him. It's not punishment. He's not exacting a, a penal price upon them. That's something Jesus took. He's disciplining them so he, they are subdued and they recognize their need to trust in him and not everything else they've been trusting in. That's the purpose of discipline. That's the purpose for why he himself fought against them. They rebelled against him. So he, pushing back at them, brings things into their lives, and in their case, nations, to subdue them back unto himself. That's the reason for it. And that's the purpose, by the way, for trials always. Um, sometimes we do things, and God disciplines us because we do them. But he always brings trials into the lives of believers at different times, not for a particular sin we may have committed, but just so that we remain dependent upon him. He gives us what we need to bear up under whatever the trial or the challenge is, but he does so so that we would grow in our trust in him. So it's not really a matter of discerning, did I do something and now God's disciplining me? Or why is this trial happening? Either case, the same result is what God is moving towards, that we would become more dependent upon him and less upon ourselves. Now, there is more that he calls us to remember. Verse 11 down to verse 14, he cites what is the most often cited redemptive act of the Old Testament, the great exodus from Egypt of the people of Israel, uh, referred to time and time again. And he recalls to God's remembrance and then to the people's and to us today as we read this text, remember God's covenant commitment to his people. And it's manifested by how he rescues them from Egypt. He promised Abraham to make them a great nation, yet they were slaves. How could they ever be a great nation? Well, he will release them from slavery under the most powerful nation on earth to show that he has kept his promise through Ab- to Abraham to this time and even to us today. Look at what it says in the text as it recalls, as it remembers. Then he remembered the days of old of Moses and his people. This is what God recalls in his, the midst of his disciplining his people, and Isaiah brings it to remembrance. Then he remembered the days of old of Moses and of his people, and his people. Where is he who brought them up out of the sea with the shepherds of his flock? So what he's saying is in the midst of this trial, he re- declares or confesses that the people rebelled, and God had to discipline them. And then God, in the midst of his discipline, remembers the covenant that he made through Abraham and kept with Moses. And so Isaiah says, where is the one who rescued the Israelites out of Egypt? They were no more righteous then. Continuing in verse 11, where is he who put in the midst of them his Holy Spirit? Where is this God who gave his Holy Spirit to deliver his people? He's calling for that same God to be in action now. Who caused his glorious arm to go at the right hand of Moses? Who divided the waters before them to make for himself an everlasting name? Who led them through the depths? like a horse in the desert. They did, they did not stumble. Like livestock that go down into the valley, the Spirit of the Lord gave them rest, so you led your people to make for yourself a glorious name. He's beginning the prayer by saying, remember the great thing you did for Israel during the time of Egypt. Please do that for your people now. Why would this be so important? Well, because they're about to go into captivity in Babylon. They may be tempted to think all is lost. 
But by recalling in the prayer, by remembering, by recounting, they're thankful for what God has done and they're recognizing he can do it again if he wills. When you're in the midst of a trial, it is easy to forget the last time that God delivered you. By remembering the last time, it helps you to endure the present situation. I want you also to see what this is all for. The reason God has moved in this way, has moved to haul the people to himself, to save those people, to sanctify those people, to continue to work on purifying his people. The scripture teaches throughout that all the works of God, all the saving works of God especially, have their ultimate goal as a display of his glory. Verse 12 says this as much. Notice what it says. Who caused his glorious arm. I mean, everybody could see what power was used to save the Israelites from Egypt. Who caused his glorious arm to go at the right hand of Moses. So no one thought it was Moses who was ultimately saving. It was the glorious arm of the Lord who did it who divided the waters before them. Why? To make for himself an everlasting name. In the Old Testament, when God speaks of making a name for himself or something for his namesake, that's a reference to his glory, to be magnified, to be manifested, to be displayed. Why did he do this redemption out of Egypt? To make for himself an everlasting name. Then look at verse 14, the last verse in this opening section of the prayer. Like livestock that go down into the valley, talking about the people now at at peace. The Spirit of the Lord gave them rest, so you led your people. Why? Why did he do this? Why did he redeem his people? Why did he keep his promises? To make for yourself a glorious name. Isaiah has zero trouble praying with the end goal being God's glory. Why? Because he knows that if God is glorified and we are his people, we, we... reap the results or the fruits of this. And so if we're in Christ, we can be sure of the promises of God having their impact in our life too. We'll receive that. Even though God receives the ultimate glory, we will have rest because it's what God has designed us for. So much of what makes us strive in the Christian life is we are going after our own glory while giving God lip service. We want our own success, so we pray to God, as though that means that we're doing this for God. We really want it for ourselves. I mean, we don't say it that way, but that's what we're thinking. And we'll only give God praise if he gives us success. Well, here's the problem. God is not interested in your success. He's interested in glory, his glory. And so success for us is God's glory. And that will actually be a more restful place. You know, I did a little bit of a survey back at some of the texts we had studied because this concept of God's glory as the ultimate reality and the ultimate road for our own joy um, is throughout the book. Listen to just this brief touch point on some verses that we have studied, and I hope you remember some of them. Isaiah 46. Remember the former things of old, for I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. See, it's best that we understand whatever our goals are, they have to be in line with his purpose for them to have ultimate success or lasting power. So it's about what he will accomplish. Isaiah 48, for my name's sake, for his glory, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you, that I may not cut you off. 
So it's for his glory that he doesn't cut us off, it says. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. For my own namesake, twice he says it, for my own namesake, I do it. So he saves us, but he also gives us trials, and he purifies us for his glory, for his namesake. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. Then, Isaiah 49, and he said to me, you are my servant Israel, in whom I will be glorified. So in his people, the saving of his people, the redeeming of his people, the sanctifying of his people, the maturing of his people, through this he will bring glory to himself. Harkens right back to what Paul said in Ephesians 1 that I referred to earlier. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, and here's the key, to the praise of his glorious grace. Why did he predestine us? Why did he adopt us? Why did he make us sons and daughters? To the praise of his glorious grace. What a way to start every prayer. If not to say the words, to know them when you pray. That would revolutionize our praying if we would think in those terms. We start with a thankful recounting of the grace of God to us in Christ. What would that drive us to do? That would make us adore God. We would just want to praise his name. But then after we adored him for a little bit, if you're like me, you'd be like, wow, I am a sinner. I can't believe that I'm allowed in the presence of God. And I confess to you, Lord, I'm a sinner. And God responds by saying, but you are mine in Christ. And that releases us. It gives us peace. And now we can listen to what his instructions are. And so he gives us instruction. And we hear his instruction. He says, by the way, I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you a further grace to live this out. I just described exactly the way the order of the worship service is set up. And that's exactly how the prayer moves. And that's how prayer in general, how meeting God looks. And Isaiah gives it to us starting at verse 7 when he says, I will recount the steadfast love of the Lord. I will, start by the grace, I will start in the grace of God. I can't talk to you, God, until I recount your grace. And your grace has saved us, it's redeemed us, it's sanctifying us, and it's all to the praise of your glorious grace. Now, when I start this way, brothers and sisters, I'm not so quick to ask for a laundry list of stuff. Now, go to your father. He cares about what you want. But can you see how what we want should be tempered by what he has done? And it will change the way we pray. And prayer actually is meant to do that. It's meant to change us. You're not changing the mind of God by prayer. What you're doing is you're speaking to God according to his word and according to the things that you would desire as long as they are agreeable to his will and you don't always know what his will is. So you pray those things, you counsel with the word, you think upon what God said in his word, you keep praying for those things and in time either God responds or God shows it is his will and you see response or answer or you don't and you realize I'm not praying for the right things. Maybe I'm praying for my own glory without saying it. It's complex, it's personal, every individual deals with it on some level and corporately as a church even the way we pray. But if we always would start with, I recount the steadfast love of the Lord, it will root us in the grace of God first. And you might not get out of that section of prayer. And that would be all right. What's man's chief end? I mean, the most important question that we as Christians could ask, the most important question for people on earth is, how can you be right with God? 
And Christ is the only way you can be right with God. The next most important question for a believer who already understands that, what's your ultimate end? What is your purpose? And your purpose is to glorify God because that's what he is doing through us. But here's the beautiful part of that answer. And to enjoy him forever. Because if you are glorifying God, you will enjoy him. With joy being the key word. These opening verses of our, our opening verses to a magnificent prayer offered on behalf of God's people by the prophet Isaiah. And there's no doubt that the world would have been looking at Israel at this time, the people of God. And there's no doubt the world looks at the church like this at times as well. Boy, they look defeated. Their God's not doing much for them. They're going to go into captivity or they're down and they're out. Well, Piper gives a really good illustration, and I'll close with this to help us remember. A wise and powerful general whose supreme goal is to gain the glory of victory may silently allow tactical retreats of his own forces from time to time pulling back his forces. During these apparent losses, his enemies gloat over the general and say, where is this glorious military genius we've heard so much about? Then, suddenly, like a thief in the night, he brings in his flanks and with one surrounding crunch destroys his enemies. And all the world marvels at the general's wisdom and patience. He is more glorified in the end because he has allowed the temporary apparent defeats. So it is with God. No one will ultimately deny to him his glory. Even disobedience will be turned to God's glory. And he's doing that in the life of the church and in the life of his people individually. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Lord, we will indeed recount your steadfast love. The praises of you, O Lord, the only one who deserves them in full. According to all that you have granted us. And the great goodness to your people that you have shown, that you have granted us according to your compassion, according to the abundance of your steadfast love. Amen.